0: It's not like, well, how do you scale it to all of the presidents around? There aren't that many presidents. There's like not that many presidents in the United States. And therefore, there's just not the question of, well, gosh, we just, he tweets so much. How could we possibly keep on top of it? They can. And at that point, we confront the question of, all right, now that they have the power to shape it, is it safer to ask them to, according to some higher principle, or safer to say, no, no, you shouldn't touch it at all, because you might get it wrong, it leads to wrong incentives, or whatever it is.
1: I'm Quinta Jurecek, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 14th, 2021. Yesterday, January 13th, the House of Representatives impeached President Trump a second time for encouraging the violent riot in the Capitol building on January 6th. And yet, the impeachment is probably less of a crushing blow to the president than something else that's happened in recent days—the loss of his Twitter account. After a few very eventful weeks, our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation is back. Evelyn Dwight and I spoke with Jonathan Zittrain, the George Bemis Professor of International Law at Harvard Law School, about the decision by Twitter, Facebook, and a whole host of other platforms to ban the president in the wake of the Capitol riot. There have been a lot of hot takes about the bans against Trump in recent days, so we thought we'd take a step back and situate what's happening within the broader story of Internet governance. And Jonathan is the perfect person to do that with. We talked about how to understand the bans in the context of the Internet's history, how platforms make these decisions, and, of course, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 14th. Jonathan Zittrain on the great deplatforming. Jay-Z, thank you so much
2: for joining us. Hello, hello. So let's set the scene a little bit. We are talking in the wake of the great deplatforming. So after the deadly riots at the Capitol last week, President Trump has faced a swift and brutal reckoning online. So we've got uh, Snapchat, Twitch, Shopify, email providers, payment processors, a bunch of other platforms that have all cut ties with the president or his campaign. And after years of resisting calls to do so, both Facebook and Twitter have also suspended Trump's account. This is an awesome exercise of power by these private corporations. I mean, awesome in the neutral sense, as in like great and, uh, again, in the neutral sense, a very large exercise of power, cutting off the sitting president of the United States from his most direct line to his constituents in the world. It's a move that I think was probably unimaginable one year ago, let alone five. So as someone that has been working in this area and watching it all play out since the early days of the web, what was your first reaction to this Friday night massacre? Of platform bans?
0: Well, my first reaction was relief <laughs> as a citizen. So that I, I want to just put some priors up first. But of course, I'm not here to speak as a citizen, but as somebody who's been, I guess, researching some of this stuff over the years. And in that sense, my reaction was life comes at you fast, both for the president, given the way that the companies tend to flock together and are ultimately implicitly, if not explicitly, giving one another cover to do it and not feel too targeted politically or in the public eye for doing it. But there's also life comes at you fast for me in the sense of I'm among those who have been over the years skeptical of platform centralization, that it is a good thing, either technically or normatively, thinking that we want a multiplicity of ways to speak, ways to be heard, ways to have stuff sorted. And now what we're seeing, as you're pointing out, is something made effective and possible because of the concentration for the respective platforms, the aggregation of users that they represent. And I think, especially if one's reaction as a citizen is relief, then that really needs to be tested against a background sense of wouldn't the world be great if there weren't a handful of unelected corporate gatekeepers that shaped speech
1: so i think my question then is you know what, what is the right answer here like is it correct in your view for these platforms to have taken action to boot Trump off. And and we'll discuss later in the show the fact that some of these providers are very differently situated than others, right? Like an email provider is very different than Twitter. We can argue endlessly about the sort of the ins and outs of what rules bound this decision or didn't bind it, At the end of the day, though, is it all just going to come down to, as you say, relief?
0: No, I I think we really do want to be able to pull it apart analytically. I think maybe two things in play here are, first, this is an era in which the impact of the use of the platforms appears to be widely thought to be high. That it kind of matters to the unfolding of events in the physical world, whether the president is allowed to be on Twitter, that it matters. And I think while there still might have been a fight about deplatforming somebody five years ago, 10 years ago, it might not have been thought to really have an impact on the course of human events in the way that it does now. Now, maybe that's not as true with Shopify, although you know money flows are also important, but that that makes the stakes feel pretty high in a way that maybe they didn't as much societally before for a given action by the platforms. And the second thing is, there is Kant's semi-famous question in talking about ethics, where he wrote that, ought implies can. If you say that somebody should do something, it's got to be the case that they're able to do it. Otherwise, how are you demanding that they do something they're unable to do? So, all right, that kind of makes sense from an ethical perspective. There's the reverse of it now, which is coming into focus, which is when does can imply ought? And I think that it's only recently that intermediaries of the sort that Facebook and Shopify and Amazon are, Amazon and multiple guises, that they can be said to have the ability at all to really consistently shape speech or detect problems and deal with them at scale. And I know we might get around to talking about CDA 230, which is a provision about when intermediaries are or aren't responsible for what their users do. And at the time it was enacted, there was at the time a completely shared understanding by nearly everybody that if they were to be responsible for what was going on, there was so much going on that they would just end the party, that you wouldn't have User generated content, as it's called. You wouldn't have platforms that allow people to just post stuff because if they thought they'd be in trouble for it, if you have a million people, you can't guarantee that all million are going to be doing everything okay. And that was part of the basis of providing legal immunities of the sort that CDA 230 does. But in the public discourse, then, there's just been a kind of pause in thinking about the responsibilities of these intermediaries. For years. And now I think, in large part, thanks to AI, there is an ability to shape and detect stuff at scale, for better or worse. And at that point, you ask the reverse of Kant's question when does can imply ought? And for the president, it's not like, well, how do you scale it to all of the presidents around? Like, there aren't that many presidents. There's like not that many presidents of the United States. And Therefore, there's just not the question of, well, gosh, we just, he tweets so much, how could we possibly keep on top of it? They can. And at that point, we confront the question of, all right, now that they have the power to shape it, is it safer to ask them to, according to some higher principle, or safer to say, no, no, you shouldn't touch it at all, because you might get it wrong, it leads to wrong incentives, or whatever it is.
2: Yeah, so that's really useful talking about the way that this space and the expectations of platforms has changed over time. Um it's it's sort of very tempting to focus on this moment. The the last week and you know, the last year really has felt like a whirlwind of upheaval for the internet and there's been a lot of quick takes. Everyone's suddenly a First Amendment scholar. But probably what we can value add to the conversation here is to sort of try and situate this in that broader context that you're talking about. So talk to us about how you've seen the conception of the internet and the risks that governance of the internet has been trying to respond to over
0: time. I see two phases with a bonus third. They are rights, public health, and now what I call legitimacy or process. And the rights really era around thinking about internet responsibilities of any intermediary, it began with the basis of the internet got great promise to let people communicate with one another whether singly or in small groups or in broadcast mode in a way that casts off the shackles that physics in part had imposed prior to the internet weren't wasn't enough television bandwidth for everybody to have their own station and once it's limited, it makes sense to try to like figure out who should have a license and who shouldn't. It's even okay for the government to try to decide that and there was so much thinking towards the end of the twentieth century among scholars of media and communications about how stifling it was to have these media gatekeepers keeping people apart from one another, and of course to be afraid of the government shaping those gatekeepers and then having the government able to influence speech in ways that are not safe for democracy, that when the internet came along, being able to promptly lock in the gains of being able to communicate against the threat of bland corporatism or of government intervention, that was sort of culturally speaking the name of the game. And if you said to people at that time, as was surely said, Wait a minute! It's like it's great that people are doing this, but point to some bad thing they're doing. That thing is bad. That should be stopped. And let's talk about who can stop it—public or private. The response typically was, "You know, that freedom can be a little rowdy. That's how it works." And I think to the Skokie attempted march by neo Nazis in 1977 goes up to the Supreme Court and then to the Illinois Supreme Court. And they hold that you can't withhold a permit for a march just because somebody's going to wear a swastika, as they wanted to do, around their arm. And is it like abhorrent? Yes. It it was clear that most of the people supporting the right of the marchers in Skokie to march were not Nazis or Nazi sympathizers. But it was like a perfect foil to make a high-minded case about free speech and the marketplace of ideas and the dangers of government overreach. And that culture really stayed locked in through the early 2000s. And it probably helps that the biggest fights online at that time were either around pornography, uh, and in particular, I don't mean so much obscene materials that nobody has a right to see under the First Amendment, I mean, so-called indecent materials that the court had found adults have a constitutional right to see and share and produce, but that it was okay to keep kids away from. And that gave rise to the CDA. The CDA wasn't about provision 230. That was kind of a, a bell tied onto the back of it in bulk. It was about whether there was a pornography problem and particularly with respect to kids seeing it and kind of being ruined by it. And again, high-minded decision by Justice Stevens saying, you know, first of all, the internet isn't that pervasive, so we don't have to worry about it. <laughs> and second of all, there are ways for parents to keep their kids away from it because all they have to do is just, you know, not have them walk near the family PC. And it it had the feeling of like, oh yeah, the parents are worried about rock and roll. And you know what? It's okay. Let the kids hear their rock and roll. like That to me was culturally... The base of the decision. And then the other prong of it was copyright. And oh my gosh, this guy, Sean Fanning, invents Napster like one Tuesday morning in the summer of 99. And now everybody can just download Napster and start swapping copyrighted files because it turns out you can rip them from your CD ROM drive onto your hard drive. Like the music industry rightfully went bananas over it. And it was illegal behavior, but the thought of making intermediaries be so responsible for it that they would just, again, like start looking at packets on the internet and say, is this a copyrighted packet or not? It just felt so heavy handed. And it's interesting to see that what largely was abstention in intervening in that dispute in such huge ways, and we can talk about the interventions that did happen and whether they were huge or not, but it ended up with a weird detente. Like the, the music industry, true enough, much smaller than it was at the time in dollar figures, you know, has, I think, figured out a way to make money, what money they're going to make without thinking that piracy is the problem, we say, as we tune into an Apple podcast or Spotify or whatever it is. So that's the right, era. And that's, it's really, I think, helpful to have that context, as you say, because almost all the examples i'm giving are of marginal people worrying the powerful and entrenched and being able to fight on behalf if not on behalf of the marginalized saying they are just marginalized all right fast forward and there come to be worries about the ubiquity of the internet what it tends to you know do in melting people's brains the flow of Harassment and abuse, and not being able as easily to say, Well, you know, freedom has its price. If there's bad information, just throw some good information in there. Or if you don't like it, turn it off. That's a lot harder for those conclusory responses, I think, today to have grip. And that's where I say there's this era of public health where people are framing the issue in terms of. What are the networks doing to people's lives? How maybe is the flow of bits perpetuating harm in a way that really has real world consequences? And of course, vaccine, say, or other public health disinformation during a pandemic is a great, I mean, it's a real test of the libertarian of the classic hypothetical form who says, no, no just let the bits flow. I think you, there's so many bits flowing now, you get to a kind of uh, epistemic paralysis, a kind of DDoSing of people's minds, <laughs> where it's like, I don't know what to think, especially if you're not trusting credentialed sources as just the default way of sorting one from another. And also note that this is no longer a the little person against the big, boring corporation thing. It's everybody's roles are much more mixed up today so that you don't have the satisfaction. When you're defending saying President Trump should not be deplatformed, you are not defending the little guy. There's just descriptively, it is not... the, uh, The President of the United States has a platform in the White House briefing room. He can go out and speak and get more attention, and those words will be relayed around the world more than anyone else's in the world. So... This is not you're shutting down the little guy. It's got to be a different story that's being told if you want to prevent that deplatforming. And the fact that now there's a whole public health framework and values around that that are extremely attractive values that are just a totally different language than the language of rights, which is also, to be clear, a really attractive language with important values, that leads to the kinds of confusions we have today about... How to intervene and what we would ask these intermediaries to do when they now clearly have the power to do something.
1: And you'd mentioned earlier that there was a a bonus era. Can you talk us through that?
0: (laughs) Sure. So I'm all in favor of a philosophical Manhattan Project where we just subsidize a bunch of philosophers to. Work with others and figure out the right balance between public health and rights, or some new conceptual framework that just produces the substantively right answer about, you know, when to deplatform somebody uh, or when to take down or put a damper on the spread of certain information and accentuate others. But I, of course, say that tongue in cheek. It's not like we're going to solve this. These are eternally complicated issues. And It's not like we tend to always figure out every difficult policy issue in society, whether it's like EPA fleet mileage or response to global warming or taxation levels, whatever it is. It's not like society has to come to some philosophical agreement on it and then it magically happens. We have a totally kind of or nearly totally content-free process that in good times and levels of trust in a process and the people who operate it, you would say, well, I think the right policy answer here is whatever a majority of people vote for. And then I support their vote. And maybe if I looked at it myself, I would come to a different conclusion. But a reason you have representative government is that we don't expect every citizen to be completely up on everything. We, We find people to whom we delegate it And we do that through voting. So the question is, is there some way that we could evolve a process that was of the right level of gravity to the kind of problem you're trying to solve, and that won't always generate the answer that you think is the right answer in a given speech question, but that kind of has the right range of power to exercise, and then you have the process exercise it. And that's why Thinking about deplatforming decisions as either arbitrary decisions made by a CEO because it's their turf and like they get to decide. When the companies in question and their services are as big as they are, that starts to lose its appeal. I think there really is a gravity to the decisions that like Facebook or Twitter make, which are the sorts of things that say have Evelyn suggesting that the new Facebook oversight board should be taking up the question of the deplatforming of Donald Trump on Facebook. And then Mark will see if you really meant to charter an oversight board that's independent and to which you have agreed you will be bound when they come back and say either bring him back or say keep him off. That's the answer. And like you 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 can't You can't change your mind after the wheel starts spinning and you set up the wheel and now it's spinning. There's a certain appeal to that if there's reason to have faith in the oversight board and the membership and the seriousness of their deliberations. And that is an example of a process answer that is only providing a substantive answer on some weird conflict between or deep conflict between rights and public health in whatever charter the board is responding to as it is asked to weigh this criteria against this other criterion but you know those are very flexible criteria so they they're going to be clearly bringing their own points of view to that decision and i think for a company like facebook of its size and for a decision then of this impact i like the idea of having some entity that is not having to blend in all of Facebook's other incentives as a company, gosh, I might be in front of this person, they're going to regulate me. like To at least not have those be operative incentives, that's a kind of interesting path. And that's the legitimacy or process era.
2: I mean, totally. To me, it feels like this is the raison d'etre of the board in some sense. Like there's even a process for expedited review, for exceptional circumstances, for Facebook to send something to the board and make it decide within 30 days if there's, you know, an ongoing sort of emergency circumstance. And I have a feeling that this exact situation might have been in the minds of the drafters of that provision when they wrote it. And so I can't understand. You know, if not now, when would you use that process?
0: (laughs) Well, it's certainly the deep end of the pool for a board that might want to just kind of limber up before immediately starting their marathon.
2: I, I, look I take that argument I just feel like that's a little bit paternalistic of Facebook like it it shouldn't be up to Facebook to decide whether the board can handle it and send it over and if it really believes in this project and this experiment which it's you know lobbying in Europe and telling the the regulators there look we've got this great board we're handling content moderation so well well then you know put your money where your mouth is in in the most sort of high profile and controversial content moderation decision to date is, is my view
0: I think that's that's fair, I mean, as I believe you've pointed out, it'll be interesting if the way the mechanics and again so much of this is is transmuting substantive disputes into now process answers or maybe process disputes. How do you feel if the panel of the board of forty some people that is drawn to hear this turns out to not have any Americans on it, and you've got like a Bolivian, a Brit, and you know somebody else? Uh, hearing it. Now maybe that's like the beauty of the thing and you know th- th- these are the folks who are going to decide. And I I'm intrigued to see what happens. The other question with that board in particular will be how much are they designed to oh yeah, we're just the umpire calling balls and strikes. We're handed the criteria as I said before and all we're now doing is just trying to really treat the criteria as engraved diktat from a higher authority and then apply it to this? Or, you know, everybody's clearly winging it at this point. Uh, How much power do we have to try to articulate under very broad principles of balancing free expression and public harm? You know, what's the right way to capture a rationale for whatever decision we're going to say Facebook needs to take here? not limited to some specific text about, you know, rules about incitement or something.
1: I have to say, you're, given your description of, you know, a, a Bolivian and a Brit and who knows who else on a Facebook oversight panel considering the Trump's account suspension, there's there's a kind of poetic justice <laughs> to that, given the extent to which the Trump administration has been, you know, tromping around, causing fires all over the globe, right? <laughs> Maybe that is the system working after all.
0: And it it would be really interesting. I mean, talk about like all of the insularity we expect of public officials to prevent undue domestic or foreign influence. It'll be really interesting to be like, wow, there's like three people in the world now who will be empowered to decide the president's account's fate. What kind of unsolicited phone calls and mail will they be getting?
2: Yeah, and I just say further to Quinta's point, it's not even President Trump around the world. It's these platforms around the world in every other country at this very moment are still making exactly the same kinds of decisions about what speech is and isn't allowed in their in their public sphere, and you know, allowing um, political leaders who oversee you know incitement to violence and things a- a- around the globe. I'm sorry if I don't you know shed a tear for you Americans having to have uh, some <laughs> other countries weigh in on this particular decision or people from other other countries having to weigh in. (laughs)
0: Uh Uh-huh. Now, there's still, like, the larger question of the background architectures. It's very easy to just start taking for granted that, like, all right, the way that this particular universe shook out, there's Facebook and Twitter. And in the American context, you're now covering a huge swath of eyeballs that aren't looking so much elsewhere. They really are just focused on those two services so what should those services be doing? One kind of both lesson and classic maneuver when we saw earlier in the rights era, attempts to confine the flow of bits and speech for one reason or another, whether it's for pornography or for copyright purposes or something else, has been the sort of technical observation That because the underlying internet and the devices that connect to it are so malleable and themselves not centrally controlled, anybody can write code that if it becomes popular can reshape the overall ecosystem, which just isn't true about networks of roads or broadcast television or any of the metaphors or predecessors to the internet so much. And sure enough, I mean, whatever you thought about how important a problem copyright infringement was in 2002, it was eminently predictable that a second-order effect of taking down Napster and it was taken down by law, would be napigator which was different Napster servers. And then you would tune your Napster client to a different Navigator somewhere on the internet and trade files with other people who use the same one. And then after Navigator was Nutella and after Nutella was BitTorrent. And it meant that the amount of intrusion that would be required by a regulator to prevent the activity in question was going to have to be larger and larger until ultimately it would be intrusion On the generativity of the entire code ecosystem itself. And I made that argument myself. I believed it then. I believe it now. It's just interesting to still ask, it's true that if you take antibiotics and distribute them widely, you might end up with then a mutation that is resistant to the antibiotics. It's not a reason against antibiotics as a general matter. It's maybe a reason against using them foolishly or for, you know, when there's a less restrictive alternative available, use that. And here, just as an observation uh, among us in the privacy of 31 minutes into a podcast that maybe not the entire world is listening to or searching, searchability of podcasts, I think, Evelyn, being one of your points for platform moderation, I find myself surprised that there isn't the same, all right, let's just move to the next step then. You come at us this way, whitehouse.gov slash real Donald Trump is going to contain a message of up to 280 characters from the president. <laughs> just If fans want to keep reloading it, go check to see if he said something new. And when he said it, go on to Twitter and say it. And is Twitter going to like start to block lots of people who repeat something they saw at whitehouse.gov? Are they going to block links to whitehouse.gov? You could see both as a rhetorical and political matter trying to raise the stakes for the level of intrusion that has to go on. You saw it a little bit when, like, I mean, just think of the absurdity descriptively of the fact that any old schmo. Can come onto Twitter and create an account and start tweeting. But the president of the United States may not. And it's not just his one account. Like if we catch him calling Dan Scavino on the phone and having Scavino tweet for him, then Scavino's going to get canned too. It's funny that he hasn't tried to tweet through Don Jr. yet. So it makes me wonder if that's a shoe that just hasn't dropped but will, or if that whole metaphor of drug resistance, technologically speaking, really only makes sense in the configuration of a lot of kind of roguish, small folk evading the man, copyright configuration kind of thing, where it's the president of the United States, it's kind of demeaning to the president to like have to put on some weird disguise or do some jerry-rigged thing to tweet it's like maybe you won't see that. But when you start to now talk about moving down the stack and we say that, all right, now Parler is just going to get taken off of AWS by AWS, or maybe we're going to ask ISPs to look for this, that, or the other thing, and we can talk about the stack if you like, that starts to probably create pressures and incentives to pick up the pace of development of technologies that haven't seemed to be all that important or useful, but that would be technologies consistent with the way the internet works that produce all of the features of a Facebook or a Twitter, of follows and friends and broadcast messages and this and that, but with no Facebook Inc. or Twitter ink in the middle. And one of the weird facts about the internet is nearly any service that you can identify from a company that has a CEO and a server, and they could potentially be regulated and people like the service. That service, in fact, generally can be replicated in a distributed way so that there's no CEO and there's no server. And it might be harder to have a financial incentive to do it, but it can happen.
1: That's fascinating. And not the least because as you were describing, you know, whitehouse.gov refresh every minute and there's a new, you know, 280 character missive, that hasn't happened. Right? I mean, I'll confess, I was one of the people who was... Both slightly uncomfortable with the idea of Twitter just booting Trump off the platform and thought at the same time, he's the president. You know, he has the bully pulpit. He has the White House press office. He's the most powerful man in the world. He can talk anywhere. And yet it's taken, I think, until we're recording this on Tuesday, January 12th, I think until today for him to speak in public after his Twitter ban, which... Maybe speaks to how important Twitter is to him psychologically. <laughs> Maybe I would argue just speaks to the sheer, you know, laziness of the White House and the <laughs> the unwillingness to try to create those sort of clever technical workarounds. Um, I mean, do you think that this is a situation where in the same way that, you know, if we'd had a more competent authoritarian, we might be in real trouble. Not not that we're not already, but the the reason we haven't seen this so far is just that you know trump has this very peculiar combination of both delighting and inciting violence and laziness and if we have someone who is like trump but not lazy we'll see the sort of proliferation you're describing
0: i think we could in fact i, I dare say we will because if there's any trend over the past say 3 to 4 years as, by my reckoning, we are well into the ascendant public health era, the rights language, the rights habits are still there, and in some ways are still compelling, but the go-to thing these days among people thinking about this is much more this public health kind of thing, then we are seeing more and more a kind of one-way ratchet of can implies Ought and you just rolled out a whole system, Facebook, that really lets you slice and dice and segment users and know all about them so that you can advertise just the right, you know, toaster or usurious loan if you're not going to ban payday loans, which they have different policies about, to just the right interested recipient. Well, wait, why aren't you using that system to find out where? the hate speech is where neo-Nazis are. And it's as much as I think any of us in a rights classic sense might find ourselves completely supportive of the Supreme Court's plural decisions in the Skokie case, having to do with the exercise of governmental power, I find few takers who believe that the right floor for Facebook or Twitter would be exactly and only what the First Amendment prohibits. I think, for one thing, that category of pornography that is indecent but not obscene, so it's not illegal for adults to see, every single major platform does not allow that kind of pornography in it. And they even purport to apply their terms of service in private groups and private messaging. It's not clear on Facebook that you are technically permitted to send hate speech consensually to one other person about a third party, presumably, on Messenger without technically violating the terms of service. And if they have an AI at some point capable of dispassionately monitoring, as it does for copyrighted links to files right now, There may be pressure then to say, yeah, you know, go take your private conversation somewhere else. Or guess what? We've just re-architected Facebook so that you have completely encrypted Messenger and now we can't look at it. Great, score for privacy and then go ahead and scheme away with whatever you were doing. I mean, who should how much should any sense of societal public health be assessed and imposed if it is to be? on those architects is a renewed question. And my answer, certainly 10 years ago, five years ago, was an absolute don't go down that path. Let people build the tools they want to build. You do not want governments telling people what their technology mandates are. The few times we've had them, say, uh, to attempt to control copyright have been a disaster. But that's a thing that has to be rethought and refought for each new generation's technologies and problems.
2: So I think your discussion before about Sort of hate speech in, in Messenger and, and one-to-one communication gets to something really important here, which is that we often talk about these debates, content moderation writ large, as if the entire internet is the same, every platform is the same, every part of every platform is the same, um, and should have the same rules. But that's not necessarily the case. And this aspect of it has gotten a little bit of airtime this past week in the conversation about going into the stack and doing content moderation in the stack, which we've mentioned a couple of times in this conversation already, that has manifested in the various Apple App Store and Google Play Store, not allowing Parler access to its uh, services anymore, and then Amazon Web Services also cutting Parler off. And I'm just curious for your thoughts on that. What do you see as the difference between doing content moderation at at that layer of the internet, as opposed to something like Twitter and Facebook making various decisions about content moderation?
0: Yeah, good question. So we throw around a word like stack. Let's just real quickly kind of say what we mean by that. The internet's design in particular was based on a layered model more specifically a so-called layered hourglass model. And it was meant at first not as a philosophical thing so much for ethical purposes or regulatory purposes, but just for technical purposes. If you're building a distributed system that isn't designed to have like one company run it and then anybody that wants to somehow be part of it cuts a business deal with that company. If you're trying to just like build something that, invites others to contribute, you want to make it as easy as possible for them to do that. And so the magic of the internet that makes it different from so many other communications networks that could have been built and have been built, and that also has me firmly believing that if we rewound time and played it back again, we probably wouldn't get an internet. It is not an inevitable discovery like E equals MC squared that this kind of layered model I'm describing where it's meant to make it so that somebody could be in the business of shoving fiber optic cable into physical ground, a truck roll, down and up streets in front of houses and say, all I'm doing is providing conduit. Somebody else is going to figure out why that is useful and it's going to carry internet. Great. I'm just a truck person. And then there's a layer that says, all right, I'm going to provide signals through wires. And my job is just to modulate signals in certain ways. And it's going to be everybody else's problem to say what those modulated signals will mean. And this is now us going up the stack. and uh, You get to a protocol layer. That's sort of the middle of the hourglass, where that's really what the internet is. It's a set, pretty small and not rapidly changing set of understandings about what a particular construction of data will be. This is called a packet. This is how a packet routes. This is how you prioritize them if you do at all, and you usually don't, et cetera, et cetera. And if you are in the business of routing packets, you're an internet uh, internet service provider, an ISP, you don't need to know what the packets are. You don't need to know anything like that. You don't need to know even what kind of wires they went over before they got to you or where they'll be going after you deliver them to the destination of the subscriber, like just route the packets. And this division of labor is really cool because you could figure out how to route packets faster without needing to optimize it for every particular application there can be. And it's why I think of the internet. It's so obvious, but also so striking. It has no main menu. It has no toll-free number to call, to fix quote the internet there's just various purveyors of internet like ISPs maybe you call but they aren't the internet they're just part of it and as you go up the stack then on top of the ISP level and the routing of packets are different applications running on computers or on phones and those applications might in turn be developed by and contain services operated by particular companies That's where you start to get to a Facebook or a Twitter or something like that. And then you have the the content layer of what the actual meaning is of the messages that are getting sent on Facebook. And the thought, the instinct would be, the higher up you are in the stack, the less worry about excess, about getting it wrong, that there is about intervention by whoever happens to be controlling things. Under the theory that if you don't like Facebook, go use Parler. Like that's the whole... Thing. Whereas, if somebody cuts off your packets, you can't get anything. So, intervening lower in the stack is an issue. And if Parlayer can't find a host anywhere, then that is a more drastic intervention than Parlayer itself allowing some communications and not under this crude theory. And it would also say that maybe we have an ethical instinct. Getting back to the question of when does can imply ought, that says when you're higher up in the stack and you're more telling people what your service is about, that's when can implies odd. For hosting, that's an interesting kind of tricky end of thing. The, the Amazon is basically offering processors on which stuff runs, and they are in a position to know maybe what's running on it. And then the question is, Is it should we hold them responsible for everything going on? And it surely can't be a stand in the shoes kind of thing. Just because the local PTA hosts a site on Amazon doesn't mean Amazon has a view about the issues at the PTA. And I think it's a healthy thing that we wouldn't attribute that to Amazon, just like we should not attribute to Amazon in a conscious choice of selling everything available on Amazon for sale. But at some point now, especially when they're the only game in town, it has high enough stakes that you're both tempted to intervene if you think there's a terrible problem like counterfeit goods or harmful goods, unsafe goods on Amazon. Yeah, make them responsible. They're making money off of every sale, why shouldn't they like take some responsibility? And it makes if they do decide to ditch something, it's it's a lot harder to find an alternative venue. And that's where we then start to revert baby to process. Let some external process help make these tough decisions that are of a public health variety around should Amazon allow X or Y on its marketplace?
1: In the United States, at least this debate tends to coalesce around CDA 230. And I've 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 seen Republican members of Congress yell about 230 in the hours and days since President Trump's account has been removed and various other accounts and services have come down. So just for listeners who are blessedly unaware, <laughs> Section 230 uh, is a law that provides platforms with immunity for content that their users post online and gives them this power to engage in content moderation without risking immunity. It seems like repealing Section 230 is actually one of maybe the only things that Trump and Biden agreed on <laughs> during the campaign. And Now that the Democrats control both or are about to control both the House and the Senate, I think it's really a a big question what the future of this statute looks like. So do you think that reform of CDA 230 is a good idea? What what should we be looking for out of it? Or should we just be yelling, oh, God, please don't touch that?
0: Well, I think the way to cut through some of the confusion around it is to make sure to ask anybody who's bellowing anything about 230 say forget 230 for a second tell me what the problem is you are trying to solve and the amazing thing is because of the way 230 came about and has been understood You can fit nearly any problem that somebody thinks they're having into, well, that's why we need to get rid of 230 even if the problem they think they're having is opposite to the problem that somebody else who wants to repeal 230 is having, which is why you need to ask them what problem they're solving for. And the backdrop to 230's enactment is exactly tied to the conversation we were just having about the stack because it was a pretty creative decision by a court, I think a New York court. In the '90s, on a common law case about defamation, trying to figure out when is a message board responsible, not even an internet message board, a prodigy, when is a, a message board responsible for the message that a user posts on it? And their answer was kind of about the stack. It said, if the service that the message board is providing is kind of just like an ISP for ideas. It's like ideas go in one end and out the other and they're not really moderating the flow so much. Then they're not that responsible. They're kind of like a bookstore. Now bookstores aren't immune weirdly enough, but they're close to it. You know, if they have actual knowledge of something defamatory, they may actually have to make sure they don't sell it. But short of that, they're not responsible if somebody walks into the store and points to a book on a shelf and says, "Wait a minute, I'm defamed in that book. Take it away immediately." And the court was kind of like, it's up to you guys, providers of message boards and other services. If you're going to be doing a lot of moderation, then kind of you're like a newspaper. So you should treat you like a newspaper, which, to be fair, a newspaper is responsible for everything it publishes. Even a letter to the editor, it's like if that letter is defamatory, they stand in the shoes of the letter writer. And they have a lot more money, typically, than the letter writer for somebody saying that they were harmed, say defamed by the letter. So that's the backdrop of 230. And the worry was that that seemingly sensible sliding scale might create a bizarre kind of second order effect, which would be, wait a minute, I'd rather have a legal posture where I'm only treated like a bookstore. So I guess I won't intervene so much. I won't be moderating so that I can then say, don't worry, I don't moderate. So don't blame me for bad stuff. Which is weird. The less you do, the less you have to do. And against the backdrop, as we said, of the Communications Decency Act being about trying to keep kids away from otherwise lawful pornography for adults, we want the platforms to undertake, at least if they're moved to do it, to create a family-friendly service, which in these days, Twitter and Facebook and Pinterest are. We want them to be able to intervene, but don't want those interventions to in turn make them responsible for everything the way a newspaper would be. Boom. That's what 230 did. It said, I don't care whether you are a publisher or a neutral distributor or a platform. It doesn't matter. Be whatever you want to be. You're not going to be responsible because without 230, neutral platforms were less responsible anyway. And- Somebody then wanting to repeal 230 might be wanting to repeal it so that no matter how much you are already moderating, if you miss a spot and something slips through that is damaging, you will be held responsible for it. Without 230, that will be the case. So if somebody's trying to solve the problem of there's too much horrible stuff online, 230 is letting platforms get away with letting it happen. And there are cases like the Herrick versus Grinder case of somebody goes on to Grindr, impersonate somebody else, that somebody else gets tons of unsolicited attention that's like making their life hell. And Grinders like, sorry, 230, not our problem. We didn't do it. One of our users did. And if 230 weren't there, Grindr would have to be a little more attentive to customer service calls when somebody says, hey, somebody's impersonating me online. They might have to do something about it and not just rely on their ethics to do it. If, however, you were trying to solve the opposite problem, you guys are intervening too much. You should stop intervening. And it's only 230 that eliminated the sliding scale that says that when you intervene more, now you're like a newspaper and you're responsible for everything. Get rid of 230 And now you won't censor. And that's obviously what the president, to the extent he's thinking about it, is thinking. 230 means they're taking down my stuff and they're not having to pay a price for taking it down. They should have to pay a price. What would the price be if 230 went away? That they could be liable for other totally unrelated problems if they go so far as to edit the president because now they're acting in an interventionary way and they're more like a newspaper than a bookstore. I mean, it's a talk about a banked shot. So, tell me the problem you want to solve and then let's figure out if there should be some form of legal responsibility on a platform sufficiently articulated so the platform knows what it's supposed to do and then if it's a good idea, make it happen and say, irrespective of 230, this should be what happens. But have the problem in mind first. Otherwise, it's completely incoherent to talk about repealing 230 or not, unless you just want to take a complete spin at what a New York court is going to say in 2021 the responsibilities are with the sudden absence of 230 and like, whatever level of moderation a Facebook and a Twitter are currently doing.
2: Okay. So to close out, let's Zoom way out again in 2008 you wrote a book called The Future of the Internet and How to Stop It that was not as pessimistic about the internet uh, as the title suggests but did presciently predict the rise of all-powerful gatekeepers. It's now 12 years into the future and we're sitting in the ruins of the mess that was the 2020 US election and then the events of last week at the Capitol. The internet seems decidedly more of a dark place than it did in 2008. So a two-part question first of all, is this because we failed to stop the future of the internet? And second, putting your internet crystal ball gazing hat back on, what do you predict for the future of the internet now? Uh
0: huh. Well, it's true. I'm working on a sequel right now of the future of the internet and how to stop it called Well, We Tried. And it's true that I think we've we've not managed to rise to the problem I was trying to identify. And put very briefly, the problem I was identifying was This is a really cool generative system that welcomes contribution without credential from any corner. As it succeeds, it will invite abuse. Its very success will mean it is powerful enough to be worth subverting. How you deal with the bad apples will decide the direction things go in. If there's no effective means of dealing with the Bad apples arising from other people who are coding generatively. Then, at some point, you will either have rank-and-file users demanding a form of regulation, corporate regulation. They'll they'll huddle in behind gated communities, uh, and you can't blame them. Or they'll demand government regulation. At which point, the baby will be thrown out with the bathwater. That was kind of my concern. It was true of cybersecurity, and it was true of disinformation, and nearly any other problem that would make people say, you know what, Burning Man isn't for me. And I hazarded some ideas around civic technologies, technologies that didn't have to be centralized and that themselves could be developed in a community fashion, the way that Wikipedia deals with vandalism, where if you can change a certain Wikipedia page, that could be very much worth your while. It could affect your reputation in a positive way if you're changing your own. And what's the defense against that? A bunch of Wikipedians have defenses against vandalism and against self-serving edits that, you know, seem to work more or less in many instances. It's just unfortunate that those tools and those practices haven't managed as much to be replicated elsewhere. And it leaves us today with the kind of unpalatable choice of taking issues that are so deep and so much tied to who we are as people and what we want to be as humanity it's our identities it's it's who we're connecting with it's what what agenda is set for us every day when as it turns out many of us go to a feed and say entertain me. Like I don't even know what I, I'm not I'm not running a search. I'm just looking at something. What are you going to show me? That is a huge conveyance of power from you to somebody else. And I would love to see ways in which first all the eggs aren't in one basket. I still very much believe in a world of multiple sources of information, which can make it harder to corral disinformation because there's not just one place you go to take it down. But it might make it harder also to spew disinformation or hatred or something viral from just one source. I think there is a resilience in that kind of distributed entropy. And thinking about for ourselves are the stakes of what we see and decide the world, it tells us what the world is like and how to think about it, that though it's high enough, I want to see people involved in decisions around content that aren't trying to even just have the Facebook oversight board of 42 wise people paid a quarter of a million US dollars a year, figure it out. That's the kind of answer that I think would point towards valuing the freedom that the 1990s bequeathed us in technology without just having it be a smoking mess. At the moment, what it has gravitated towards when it's only about what tends to garner the most eyeballs and retweets or whatever it is, has been hatred. I mean, like, hatred and schadenfreude are the, like, twin powers and that's—are we surprised that we're at where we are?
1: Well, we've made it a bit of a running joke that we always end on a depressing note. So I think we've we've more than fulfilled that here.
0: <laughs> well, I'm reminded of the E.O. Wilson quote that I heard Asa Raskin invoke. E.O. Wilson, who studied ant colonies for many many years, he said, "We have Paleolithic brains and emotions." Medieval institutions and godlike technology, what could possibly go wrong? and you know the optimistic part is, all right, we've got some really cool technology. <laughs> Let's see if we can build the institutions aware of our own individual limitations that actually help help us be the best that we want to be
1: well, on that note. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast and whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.